right, if you have a Bible, let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be finishing up a series that we actually began in August and then took a few weeks off from it, a series that we've called Overflow. And it's out of the book of Colossians. And if you missed the, very, uh, few, the first several weeks of the series, let me see if I can just kind of quickly bring you up to speed. The message of the book of Colossians centers around having a right view of Christ and how really to take that view of Christ and to live it out through the Christian life. But it also talks about the fact that Christ is sufficient. He is sufficient for every need that we have in this life. All that we need in this life, every bit of wisdom, every bit of strength, every bit of power, every bit of knowledge, everything that we need in this life is found in a personal growing relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to just take your finger and flip back to Colossians chapter 2 for a moment in your Bibles. And I want you to listen to Paul's words. He says in verse 9, he says, For in Christ lives the fullness of God in human body, so you are also complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. In other words, Christ is enough. Now, I want, you to, I want you to understand and capture, I want you to think about what Paul is saying here, what the Bible's saying to us. He says, inside Christ lived the fullness of God. He was completely God in human form. Nothing was lacking when Jesus Christ came to earth. Everything he, need, he needed, nothing was lacking, all right? And so if Jesus Christ lives in you, then you are complete. In other words, nothing is lacking. And I want to encourage you to meditate on those verses over the next several days of this week. I know sometimes when we use the word meditate, people get kind of weird ideas about it. But the Bible encourages us to meditate on these things. And I want you to take Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. I want you to meditate on those words and just let them soak deeply into your mind. Because that's Colossians in a nutshell. All that you need in this life, because Christ is all... He is found, everything is found in your personal relationship and walk with Jesus Christ. When that relationship is at the very center of your life, his life will overflow out of your life and it will impact everything about you. His life overflowing out of your relationship with him will overflow into your spiritual growth. It will overflow into your identity, what you believe about yourself. What you believe about the Bible and how it shapes your life. His life overflowing out of you will even impact your behavior. Paul Richardson talked about that a few weeks ago as we got into chapter 3. Well, this morning's message is really, it's kind of where the rubber meets the road. First two chapters of Colossians were filled with just real rich, deep truth about having the right view of Jesus. And all of a sudden we get into chapter three and it's like God slams on the brakes, sits down, looks at us right in the eyes and he says, now, we've talked about your behavior. Now let's talk about your relationships. Let's talk about your marriage. Let's discuss how things are going between you and your kids. And let's get rid of all the warm and fuzzies and let's talk about your testimony at work. You see, because everything that you need to be successful in the most important relationships in your life is found in a personal growing relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to imagine this morning what your marriage could be like if Jesus were truly at the center of your marriage. I want you to imagine this morning what could happen in the lives of your kids 
if you took and if you put Christ at the very center of your relationship with them. I want you to imagine how things at work might change for you if you allowed your relationship with Christ to overflow into your workplace, overflow into the relationships that you have in your workplace. Now, does that mean that everything, if I put Christ at the center, does that mean that everything in my, at my work will change overnight and things will get better? No, actually they may get worse. I want you to know that. Does that mean that, if, that, it, that, that I won't have problems with my kids if I put Christ at the very center? No, but it, it, it means that you'll probably handle those problems differently. Does that mean that all my marriage problems will, will disappear if Christ is at the center of my marriage? Probably not overnight. But you and your spouse might be able to draw closer and get on the same page as you work through those problems. Now, before we dig into Colossians a, a bit further, I want to make a few observations about relationships to kind of set the table for us this morning. First of all, the truest test of whether Jesus is Lord of your life is going to be found in your home. The hardest place for any of us to consistently be Christ-like is in our homes. It's, it's easy at church for, for most of you, all right? It's a little harder when we get into the workplace, but the real challenge comes when we take the mask off and and we walk into our house. Why? Because our lives are not on display usually when we're in our homes. And so the true, true, true you is what you are at home. And the truest test of whether Jesus is Lord of your life is in your house. Second thing I want to observe is that this talk this morning is more about function, not inferiority. Function, not inferiority. We're about to discuss some verses in the Bible that have caused a lot, caused a lot of controversy over over the last several years. These are verses that they have been twisted, they have been misused, they've been in many times misrepresented in order for people to gain personal uh, gain and, and even sometimes control over others. And so as we look at these verses, here's, here's what we need to remember. Regardless of status, okay, regardless of gender, regardless of skin color, regardless of where you come from, all right, Everyone is equal in the eyes of Jesus Christ. Everyone is equal in God's eyes. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, 28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we've been called to play out different roles in God's grand scheme of life, in God's grand scheme of just things. So, for instance, a husband and wife are personal equals before God, but they play different roles in the family, uh, family simply for um, functional purposes. And the same is true for children and parents. God is, is a God of order. Everything that you see that he's ever created, he created it with order. The third thing I want to just make note of is that the family as a whole is in desperate need today of Jesus Christ, desperate need of help. We don't have to spit out a bunch of statistics this morning to know that the family is under attack. The family is under fire. I mean, it is unfold, unraveling right in front of our, of our very own eyes. When God created the family, he defined what it was, and then he gave, gave some guidelines, and then he also put some parameters around it for us to follow. 
Now, that doesn't mean that, that we're not going to have some challenges when we find, f- follow those guidelines. It doesn't mean that we're gonna, you know, not going to run into rough spots along the way. But when we allow God and when we allow Christ to overflow into the most important relationships in our lives, we're going to handle those challenges and those rough spots a whole lot better. It's a very practical guideline that God set up for the family. It was His design that a marriage consists of one man and one woman for a lifetime. One man, one woman for a lifetime. God is the architect. He's the designer. He's the one that came up with the whole idea of family in the first place. He created it, so he gets to call the, rule, call the rules. And he said, one man, one woman for a lifetime. And that's how he set it up. And so if we as a society ignore those parameters, here's what happens. We set ourselves up to live in a world full of dysfunction. In a world that all of a sudden falls into chaos. And so that's why God, speaking through the Apostle Paul, thought it was so important to address this issue in such a straightforward manner. And so here's the bottom line before we dig into Colossians 3. If Christ is sufficient enough to be at the very center of your life, the very center of your belief, the very center of your identity and your spiritual growth and even your behavior, then trust me, he is more than sufficient enough to be at the very center of your relationships. So let's talk about three relationships where Jesus must be at the very center. First of all, he must be at the very center of our marriage. And the Bible has a very specific word for those that play the role of wife in society. I mentioned to you earlier, again, it's a very controversial passage of Scripture. So this, is, this verse that I'm going to read, and there's another verse in, in Ephesians that's very similar to it. It is a hot verse that gets people into a tizzy. Ready? So let's go into the tizzy. Wives, 18, submit yourselves, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Now, I want to tell you the reason why I believe this verse has been so has caused so, many, so much problems for people is because it's misunderstood. It's been misrepresented. It's been abused. So I want to try to bring a little clarity to it, if I could, this morning. The word submit carries with it the idea of someone who willingly decides to follow someone else for the purpose of creating an environment of order. It's, it's a military term. Now, notice, men, that the word that the Bible uses here is not the word obey. It's the word submit. And there is a huge, guys, underscore, bold, huge difference between those two words. For a man to think that his wife is a servant is a, guys, look at me now, huge mistake. Okay, if you haven't figured that out already. God never gives you the license to boss your wife around. For you to think that the job that your wife is supposed to have in this life is to walk around behind you and to pick up all of your stuff, to clean up all of your messes, to tidy up behind you, to serve you all day long, is just simply flat wrong. When Amy and I got married, our pastor that um, did our wedding, we knew, because we had watched him do several weddings before, he used some very, very traditional vows that included Amy saying to me that in, in our vows that she would plight me thy trough. All right? Now, she told me, she said, I'll give you my all, but you're never going to get my trough, which basically means the same thing, but it was, so it was kind of funny. Um, but there was a line in our vows that she was dead serious about. 
And there was a moment in our vows where she was supposed to say to me, I will obey you. And she made it very clear to my pastor, our pastor together. She said, I'm not going to say those words. Those words are not going to be part of our ceremony. I'll say submit, but I won't say obey. Because there's a big difference between those two words. Now, let me explain what the Bible's saying here. Okay? The whole reason behind this word submission is found in the second part of the verse. It says, as is fitting to the Lord. Another translation put, puts it this way. This is what... The Lord has planned for you, ladies. In other words, God says, if you'll submit to your husband, then you're actually submitting to the Lord. You're doing it for him. You're living out God's plans, plan for your life, and you're living out the way he has put things into order in this world. Okay, again, it's all about a man and a woman working together to accomplish a task. Amy and I, when I look at our marriage together, and we looked at our marriage together, we're on the same team. We're equal partners on the same team. We're equal partners in what the Hawaiians call the Bloy Ohana, all right? The Bloy family. And this is how we roll. I mean, we will make decisions together. I, there's, not, there's rarely ever a major decision that I make for our family that does not involve her input. And there's time, there are times where we'll get to kind of a crossroads where we don't know what to do, and she'll look at me and she'll go, all right, big boy, lead. All right, you're, it's your job. You make, you, you, you make the call. Here's my input. Here's my thought. We're kind of at a crossroads here. Go ahead. Now, I want to tell you about the biggest fight Amy and I ever had. We're not typically arguers. We don't have a lot of scraps between ourselves. We have disagreements. But years and years ago, when we were kind of in the early days of Westridge, um, I had a young guy that I'd known for years who asked me and, and if to come down to Florida to perform his, mar- his wedding ceremony. And he told me, he said, listen, I know... You guys are, you know, you're starting a new church, and so it's not a lot of fun. So here's, we're going to pay for all your expenses, all your hotel expenses, we're, and we're even going to allow you to take your family to Disney World. Free, free on us. And I thought, okay, this is a great opportunity for us to get out of town. We've not really been away. And so we drove down to Florida, and when we got down there, we found out that the arrangements that we had agreed upon uh, were not necessarily going to take place. There, there was no uh, payment for, you know... Uh, travel, didn't pay for the hotel, and there were no Disney tickets to be found anywhere, all right? So I was already really stressed out going down there because we were so busy, and, you know, early days of Westridge, and money was extremely tight, and, um, and so, you know, we're trying to figure out how we're going to make this vacation seem fun for the kids, and I think Taylor was about four years old at the time, and so we're driving down International Boulevard in Orlando, and, and we're, we're looking for a restaurant to eat at. And I, and, I, and I told Amy, I said, go ahead and pick the restaurant. So she says, how about that one? I said, nah, not that one. She says, well, how about that one? I says, nah, no, not, not that one. She goes, okay, how about that one? And I said, no, not, not that one either. And so it, this is going on, and it's getting intense and now we're getting, I mean, we're both stressed out and we're both getting very intense, which voices begin to raise and I'm stressed out and I'm, I've lost it now. And now I'm yelling, well, she gets out of the car. I'm, I mean, I'm driving, okay? I'm slowing down because she's opened the door, all right? And so she gets out of the car and I'm driving on International Boulevard and I'm begging her to get back into the car, all right? And Taylor's rolled down his window and he's crying, Mom, please, get back into the car. Dad, stop the car. Get Mom in the car. And I'm thinking, no, she can stay out there. All right? And so 
finally, you know, she, she agreed to get back in the car. I actually pulled into a, into a parking area there, and I said, please get back in the car. So she, she sits down, and we're talking, and I said, I said, she goes, everything I tell you, you don't, you don't want to do it. And I said, Amy, I just want you to make a decision. She's like, I'm trying. And so I, finally, we got down to what was really going on. I was stressed out. I didn't really want to make any decisions. I was, I was overwhelmed with the situation. I, I knew we didn't have any money to, you know, to eat at any of these places that we were talking about. And I just said, Amy, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of making decisions. And I'm, I just, and here's where I am. And this is what, and she's like, why didn't you just tell me all of this? Communication's a big part of marriage. I, don't, I'm, I learned that early on, still learning it. And all of a sudden, we just sat there and it was like, you know, both of us just got on the same page and we just said, okay, why don't we just eat over there? And that's... That's great. And Taylor's like, yes. <laughs> Can we go to Disney now? Probably not. So, now, listen, ladies, I know we talk about submission. And I know when you talk about order, you know, in a marriage, I know that's very, in, you know, not politically correct today, you know, in today's world. But I want you to remember, fulfillment and intimacy with God come from a heart of obedience to his plan. And I'm, I'm, I know some of you may be sitting next to someone or you're, or you're here by yourself and you're thinking, there's no way I'm submitting to this joker. I don't even respect him. Ladies, I want to tell you something. You are never called to submit to something that is sinful. You're never called to submit to something that would harm your life or even harm the lives of your children. I mean, there is a line and you need to use wisdom. But remember this, your husband, guys, your husband will be held responsible and will give an account before the Lord of how he leads your home. And I take that very seriously as a husband because I realize as a leader of my family, I'm going to stand before the Lord and I'm going to give an account of how well I led Amy and our boys. Now, let's talk to the guys. Let's talk to the husbands. Colossians chapter 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, throughout the Bible, God has, I want you to know, has much more to say about the quality of a husband's leadership in the home than it does about the wife's willingness to follow. And it's been my observation over just years of doing what I do that most bad marriages are usually a result of a husband's inability to unconditionally love his wife and to be a leader in the home, more so than even the wife's refusal to be submissive. Most women that I know, most godly women I've, I've met, they will follow a man who loves her unconditionally. They will follow a man who leads his home spiritually. And listen, I've counseled some men before who have asked a very real sobering question. What if the love's just not there? What if the flame's gone out or just maybe it's just barely flickering? Well, very honest question. And, and I think it has a very simple answer. The answer lies in the answer to another question. Where does true love come from? Where does true love come from? It comes from God. It, God is the source. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is the source of the love that keeps that flame burning between a man and a woman for a lifetime. Amy spoke with me a couple weeks ago, and she talked about agape love. Agape love is unconditional love. It's a commitment. It's a commitment love. It's the same love that God has for us. And I want you to remember that when we are unlovable, that when we are sinful, that when we are messing up, God still loves us unconditionally. It doesn't mean he likes it, but he's, he, there's a love, there's a commitment that he's made to us for those of, uh, of us that are his children. And it's a love that sticks and helps us through the rough spots of relationships. And then Paul goes on to say this. Husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. 
Don't take advantage of the fact that God has called her to the role of following you because if you do, it might make her bitter. Now, in the Roman culture, when this was written, it was very common for a man to yell, to scream at his wife, to call her names, or even abuse her verbally or physically. And God puts this in here to say to us men, listen, there is absolutely no room in a godly home for us to ever yell, scream, or in any way abuse our wives. No room at all. Now, I've heard it said before, women, they're like flowers. They radiate and they blossom when they are nurtured and taken care of. But they will die inside. They'll wilt inside if they're neglected or treated harshly. In other words, guys, love that woman that God's given you. And if you do, your marriage will be sweet. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7. He says, in the same ways, same way, you, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with an understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. And then I want to focus in on this last phrase here. Treat her as you should, you should so your prayers will not be hindered. Now, guys, this is a strong word from God. If you treat your wife poorly, it will impact your prayer life. When a guy comes to me and he tells me that he's fallen out of love with his wife and that God's leading him into a different direction, into a different relationship, I have a very simple response. God's not leading you at all. He's not leading you. I mean, how, how you see, and, and I've had a guy, how's that? Because your prayer life's messed up. You treat your wife harshly, you treat her poorly, God's not leading you, he's not listening to you, and neither is he talking to you if you're treating your wife poorly. Now, let's talk about parenting for a moment. And let's talk first of all to the kids, the child, the children. Verse 20, it says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, the word obey means hear under. In other words, kids have a duty to listen to and carry out the instructions of their parents. Obeying your parents is the fifth commandment in the Bible, and it's a commandment that has a promise attached to it. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, growing up, I was always very intrigued by this verse because I thought that it meant that if I disobeyed my parents that I was going to die at a young age. Disobey, I will kill you. All right? Well, I found out later that the promise that God makes to children is this. When a child obeys his parents or her parents, they escape a great deal of sin. They they escape a great deal of danger. danger. They, They avoid doing foolish things that could shorten or threaten their lives. I mean, there's a principle in the Bible that says that you reap what you sow. And if you sow a life full of disobedience, a life full of of guilt, you're going to end up with a lot of heartache and a lot of shattered dreams. But when you live in obedience to your parents, which is, by the way, in obedience to God, God promises that things will go well for you. In other words, you're going to be happier in life. You're going to have more peace in your life. You're going to avoid a lot of heartache and you're going to avoid potential danger. I've never met a child who is intensely in love with God and following God who is living in disobedience, flat-out disobedience to their parents because one relationship is going to follow another. Your relationship with God, kids, is going to overflow into your relationship with your parents. Now, I know some of you, we're all children in here of someone, 
And some of you may be thinking, okay, when does this end? Do I, do I have to obey my parents when I am an adult? Now, there's really no time limit placed here, but the, the word used for child in this passage usually refers in other places of Scripture to someone that is still under their parents' authority. So if my mom, who's sitting over here this morning, if she called me and said, listen, I want you to know that you're grounded, I would laugh at, at the whole deal. If she told me to be by, in, you know, by 11, I would say, no, you need to be in by 11, all right? But I, wanna, I want you to know this. As long as she is alive, I'm going to honor her. And that's where this goes, where we are called to honor our parents. All right, and I know some of you, you may, be, you know, you may have a parent situation. You go, listen, my, my dad, my mom, they don't deserve honor at all. And sometimes you need to think about, it's not so much about the person, it's about the position. You need to think about our president. You may not like our president, or, but we need to honor the office of presidency. And then let's talk to the parents for a moment. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, Paul, because of the context of when this was written, Paul addresses men, and he's addressing the father here because he's the head of the house. But this, this verse, I believe, applies to parents. And Paul says, moms, dads, don't cause your children to be bitter because it will lead them to be discouraged. Now, there are four things you can do to discourage your, chi- your child. Four things. Number one, ignore them. A child who feels ignored is going to feel resentment. Children that grow up in homes where mom and dad basically have absolutely no time for them, they're going to soon go out looking for someone else to meet that need. The second thing you can do is indulge them. This is where a parent buys their kids everything their heart desires. This is not good because if your child is, is, is indulged, they're never going to be satisfied and they're going to end up spoiled. And then try to imagine passing them off to some guy, you know, when you, you, at an altar who's never going to be able to meet that need because you've been spoiling them all their lives. And then insult them. Nothing can take the wind out of a child's sails quicker than constant sarcasm and ridicule. And then fourth thing, intimidate them. When you make threats or there's unfair expectations, I mean, that can cause children to be scarred for lives, for, the, for their whole life. So some of you are going, well, how do I get my kid to obey? Because I've tried these things. They don't work. How do I get my kid to obey? Listen, I've, Paul gives us advice in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Some of you have, have just said, I have spent money on my kids. I, have go, I go to every game. I try to be a good listener, and they still will not obey. And here's some, here's some questions I want to ask to you as parents. First of all, am I truly modeling Christ in my own life so that my children have a Christ-like model to follow? Secondly, am I instructing my children in the ways of the Lord? Are you really teaching your kids God's word, God's ways in your home? Do you believe that your kids are not yours, but instead they're a gift from God? When you can have that mindset, it really changes the way that you approach parenting. These are not my kids. They are God loaned these. He put these kids on loan. They're, they're his. And then the fourth thing, are you partnering with the God? Come in, are you bringing God into the center of this to enable your kids to be all that God wants them to be? And then number five, are you proud of them? Are you proud of them? And do you communicate that to them? Listen, I, I've just continued to learn the power of words and the power of being able to look at a child or even to look at a, a, 
you know, a son or a daughter, whether they're grown or they're still little, and just going, listen, I want you to know I am proud of you. You are great. You are so good at this. You are just, and, and do they feel like you're on their side? And then finally, are you calling your children to obedience and are you providing correction and discipline that is both firm and fair? I know, some of, I know sometimes we don't get this, but kids, not only do they need structure, but they actually want it. They may not be communicating that to you, but they need it and they want it. I'll tell you one of the best, one of the biggest lessons I've learned about just being a parent. One of the most valuable tools that you have, okay, in your tool bag of parenting that may not cost you any money is just simply time. And I'm not, I'm not talking about sitting, I mean, you know, sitting outside of a, a fence and watching your kids play sports. I mean, that's great. That's important. And you need to be doing that. I'm just talking about time and not just quantity time, but I'm talking about quality time. I remember when we first moved to Georgia, we were living in, a, in an apartment in Lithia Springs and we were, I was so busy and my phone was ringing constantly and, um, and my phone still rings constantly, but I was sitting down on the floor with Taylor. He was two years old and we had this moment where my phone would ring and I would take the phone call and I would get up and I would leave and I would go talk and I would come back and sit down and I would play with him some more and the phone would ring and I'd pick the phone up and I would go away and this happened two or three times and the last time it happened, I went back to where he was and he was gone. He was on to doing something else where he had gone to bed. And I, I went to Amy and I said, I, why did he leave? I was playing with him. You know, he, he won't come back. And, and she's like, Brian, every time that you answer that phone, you're communicating something to him. You're communicating to him that whoever calls you, whatever happens, they're more important to you than he is. And it was like one of these moments that just pierced my heart. And I, so at that moment, I made some huge shifts. And, you know, when I'm playing with him, when I'm, you know, involved in what Zach's doing, I don't care who calls unless it's Amy. I'm not, that is going to be the most important. Time is such a valuable tool to just getting your kids to listen to you, to obey you. Because when all of a sudden they know that you're interested, they know you're engaged, they know that, I mean, you're talking and you're communicating. Sometimes when you're giving instruction, it just comes, it just comes through and it's heard a whole lot better. And then finally, Christ must be the center of our workplace. Now, let me talk to the employees. And most of us in this room are employees of someone or something, some corporation. Apostle Paul says in verse 22, bond servants, employees, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord, uh, the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, I want you to understand when this was written, because some of the words here are kind of like bondservant, master, really? When this was written, almost 50% of the people living in the Roman Empire were slaves. And it was verses like this, and there were you know, teachings like this that really brought in a change of mindset to the Roman Empire. And the gospel eventually helped to come into the Roman Empire. And it caused it to end slavery because masters and slaves started then treating each other. Once the gospel invaded all of this, they began to treat each other more as brothers and sisters in Christ rather than masters and slaves. And the great thing about these verses is that they can be applied to today's workplace environment as well. And here's the challenge. As an employee... Are you giving an honest day's work? Do you understand that when you work hard at your job, according to what the Bible says here, you're actually working for the Lord? 
In other words, your employer may be paying your salary, but the Lord is the one that you're actually working for. Verse 24 tells us that our work ethic and our behavior at our jobs in this life will eventually lead to bigger raises and bonuses in the next life. Now, some of you are going, I want it to lead to that in this life right now. And I'm not saying that that may not happen. It may or may not. But God's saying, listen, you work hard in this life and it you, you follow my guidelines in this life, it's going to lead to, to an amazing life in heaven. And then finally, he gives a word to the employer. He says in, in chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. If you own a business, or if you have people that work under you, God says, do what is right and be fair, because you're going to give an account of how you treated everyone that worked for you. So make Christ, put Christ at the very center of your workplace. Now, I want to tell you something. There's no doubt. Relationships, they take a lot of work. They can stress us out. They can be consuming. And it's amazing how Satan loves to attack the home. How he loves to attack our children and target our children. How he, he just loves to come into a workplace and just stir things up. But I want to point out something about these verses that I believe is the key to every godly relationship. In these verses, Jesus is referred to as either Lord or Master seven times. And I, I believe the reason why this is so important is because the key to being a successful parent, the key to having a successful marriage, the key to the employer-employee relation is the role that we allow Jesus to play in those re- relationships. And so, is he the Lord of your marriage? Is he the Lord of your parenting? Is he the Lord of your workplace situation? Jesus must be Lord. That's what Colossians is all about. Jesus must be master. He must be at the center. Because if he's not in his proper place, if we don't give him his proper place in all three of these things, things are going to be out of balance. Chances are, things are going, we're, we're going to have some issues. But when he's placed at the center, it's amazing how he allows, just doesn't mean everything's going to be great, doesn't mean there's not going to be problems or issues, but it's amazing how he just allows things to work out and he allows us to have strength to work through even together through all of the problems and issues that we face he changes our mindset he helps us just gives us strength and peace so the question is how are we doing this morning for those of you that are married how are you doing is christ at the center of your marriage for those of you that are parents or for children who are listening to me how are you doing would you say Christ is at the center of that relationship or just outside somewhere? Have you pushed him out? In your workplace, is he at the center? This morning, um, we're getting ready to take communion. And uh, I can't think of a better morning for us to take communion because communion, a lot of that goes along with communion is not only making sure that things are right vertically, but also making sure that things are right horizontally. And we're going to take a moment to do that. But I want to talk to you just for a moment about the very first thing that we need to do. The, the, the problem that some of you have this morning when it comes to this issue about putting Christ at the center is that he's not the center of your life. You have never come to a place in your life where you have said, Jesus, be the center. Which for all of us begins at the moment of salvation. It begins at the moment where we recognize and realize that we're lost without Christ that he's never been allowed 
to be the savior of our lives. We've never come to that moment where we've just confessed with our lips, Jesus, you are Lord, you're savior. You died on a cross for my sins. Without you, I'm separated from God for eternity. My sinfulness has created this problem between us. And because of what Jesus has done, there's forgiveness for me. There's a chance to to start over, to be what the Bible refers to as born again. And that's where you need to start at this very moment. I want us to bow our heads. If that's who you are at this moment, I want you just to pray with me. Just say, Lord, at this very moment, be the center of my life. Have your rightful place in my life. I receive your free gift of salvation. And I realize that without it, I am eternally separated from God. There's nothing I can do about it. And so I place all of my faith and all of my trust in what Jesus has done about it for me. He died. He was buried. He rose again for me. And without that, I am doomed. But because of that, and by me me receiving that free gift of salvation, there's life. Not only life here on this earth, but life eternal. And so at this very moment, I confess my sins to you, Lord. I repent of those sins. I change my mind. And I put all of my faith and my trust in you alone to be my Savior. If you just prayed that with me, I want you to take out your Get Connected card. I want you to check the box that says, this morning I pray to receive Christ. And I want you to take it out to the, to the atrium so that we can help you to take your next step on the journey of following Jesus. With heads still bowed, I want you to think for a moment about your marriage. Husbands, how you doing? How you doing as a leader of your home? How are you doing and how you are communicating and talking with your wife? How you're loving her? Wives, how are you doing in your role, which I know is difficult, but allowing God to lead you to follow a man that sometimes you may look at and go, I'm struggling here. As a parent, how are we doing in leading our kids, instructing our kids, being the example that our kids could follow? And kids, how are you doing? And, and just allowing your parents to lead you and honoring them, for many of you, obeying them. How are we doing in the workplace? I know some of you are struggling in your workplace. I want you to just think about this. You're working unto the Lord. Those of you that have employees, how do you do in leading them and treating them fairly and being an encourager? We're going to take communion right now. I want you to look at me for a moment. Let me just give you something real simple about communion as we get ready to take it. Um, I know many of you are new to Westridge, and so we, every church takes communion a little differently. And I want to ask all of our communion hosts, if you would, to go ahead and, and take your places, if you would, at this moment. As you walk up, here's what you're going to do. We're going to have a moment of prayer, a moment where you can just, I want you to get these relationships right. I want you to get things right vertically. That's where it begins. And then I want you to focus on getting things right horizontally with the people in your life, those relationships we've been talking about. And um, when you come up, here's what you do. Just take the little wafer and dip it in the cup. Don't drink the cup, all right? Don't put your hand down in the cup, all right? Just take it and dip it, all right? And then you just eat it. 
But the most important part of all of this is when you come before the Lord and to take, you take communion, we need to come and make sure that our lives are right in a good place, that things are, are right between us and God. And the beautiful thing about this moment and the reason why Christ asked us to do this, to follow him in this, is because he wanted us to have these moments where we were able to have him clean the slate for us, to reflect in our lives, to look at our relationships, not just with him, but with others. And to make sure that those things are right before we take communion. And I would encourage you not to take communion until those things are right or until you make a commitment to make those things right. It's a very serious moment. Please don't take this lightly. But what a great opportunity that that God gives us. And we do this once a month here at Westridge. And it's such an important moment for our church to walk out of here with the slate cleaned off. God has forgiven us because we've confessed our sins. Some of you are thinking, he already knows what I'm doing. Why do I have to tell it to him? Because he just wants us to. It's an act of obedience. And it's really an act of us humbling our hearts before him and making things right. Some of you may be sitting next to your wife or your husband. Why don't you have a moment with them? I apologize. I'm sorry for this. Okay. Guys, just look. I'm, I'm sorry for being a jerk. And wives... I know you're a jerk and I forgive you, okay? And then you talk about it later and you, or maybe you're a parent, maybe just you sit next to your son or daughter or maybe your boss is in the room. I don't know. But Father, would you help us at this moment to make things right with you, to make things right with others and thank you for just this amazing idea that you came up with of observing the body and blood of Jesus, which helps us to remember what Christ has done for us by providing forgiveness for us, which in turn should cause us to reach out to those around us with the same kind of grace. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. As Chad leads us, and when you are in that place where you can take communion, I want you to come take communion. And uh, for those of you, I just want to say this, um, I want to remind you again, those of you that are married or maybe you're engaged to somebody and getting ready to get married, we got the Art of Marriage coming up this Friday. I want, to, I want to encourage you to take advantage of that. It's a great tool, a really inexpensive tool, and a free date night. All right? God bless you. Let's take communion.